everyone, this is Will, and welcome to this brand new and exciting episode of The Missing Piece. When we look around the world today, the United States, in terms of the foreign policy, is standing at the crossroads. On one hand, this nation is gearing up its effort and trying to collaborate the much greater effort with the countries in Southeast Asia. But meanwhile, building the rivalries and also facing the competitors such as China is no easy case. But at the same time, it's crucial that we need to understand what is happening within this country today, not just the US, but China. This country with the population of 1.4 billion people. And but today, compared with 1949, it's no longer just a name on the map, it's actually one of the key players among the international communities. So that's why today it's my great honor to invite our distinguished guest, Dr. Klaus Muhan. And again, Dr. Muhan has been the president of Zeppelin University and the chair of Modern China Studies since June 1st, 2020. However, in 2019, Dr. Muhan came out one of this amazing, should I say, a, a remarkable book and entitled Making China Modern from the Great Qing to Xi Jinping and was published by Harvard University Press and also it's been available in German language as well. So today I'm going to dive into this book with Dr. Muhan to discover what research and intention behind this book and how should we understand this one of the largest political and economic shift in the world today. Without further ado, Professor Muhan, and welcome to The Missing Piece. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Professor Muhan, I want to get started. Again, as I mentioned in the intro, you are not the first person who wrote about, uh, wrote about China. But meanwhile, if we look at the world today, look at the people around the entire world, people are fascinated about this country. Now, the first question I want to ask Professor Muhan is, how should we understand China today, especially under this pandemic and this global competition or this economic rivalry with other countries? What do you make of that? Well, thank you so much. An excellent question. And so as I try to uh, explain in the book, um, you know, I'm, you're absolutely right. I'm not the first to write about China. Definitely not. And, and not the first general history. But my approach is a little bit different because I look at the institutions in China. So I'm interested in the way Chinese people organize their society and their economy and their businesses. And I think I look for explanations for the situation that China is in today by tracking down the institutional development of certain organizations. So if we look back to your question, if we look at China today, what makes China special or what makes it different, what explains uh, the situation or the development in contemporary China is its institutional roots, its history behind these institutions. You know, Professor, again, when we talk about China, and again, I agree with you that the word institution, it's so critical and it's so essential for us to understand, not just about China, but any other countries in the world. But for China, when I hear the word institutions, naturally, I will think about another one. It's called regulations, rules. But we know that, again, as I mentioned before, 
Comparing with 1949, that was only a name on the map, and the world started to realize China was actually a country. It was not just a, was not actually a name per se. But fast forward, regulations and rules we always say tend to be broken. So again, under current leader Xi Jinping. How should we understand the word constitution? I mean, excuse me, institution. Does that mean China is trying to be unconventional, to be untraditional, in order to keep up with the paces with the rest of the world? So, if we if we go back and and we see, you know, have this uh, entire development, uh, you know, in front of our eyes. I think what we can see is uh, also today that Xi Jinping understands and tries to use the institutions that he has found, you know, to his advantage. Mm. So, you know, it's not, it, it, they tend to be broken. That's to some degree true. But then on the other hand, uh, these, the, the, I think the ambition or the, the intention is of today's China is exactly to, to keep these institutions alive. Mm. Now, institution is very abstract. What are we talking about? You know, we are talking about, for instance, certain ways to organize society that can be tracked down to the Soviet Union, because in the end, it's a socialist country. Mm. But this is alone is not the entire explanation. I think we also have to look back to earlier traditions. So, for instance, what makes China successful today? These are the businesses, but it's not the state-run businesses. Mm. It's the private businesses, the family businesses. And they are organized in a way that is very similar to the way they were organized before 40, 1949. So the situation in China we, we see today is very hybrid. You see socialist institutions, pre-modern Chinese institutions, and also, of course, American impact or influence is also visible. So it's a very hybrid, very, very a system that is also full of tensions in a way. Mm. You know, Professor, I want to uh, start reading something that you actually wrote in the book. And again, I strongly encourage everyone to get a copy of this amazing uh, masterpiece. Now, Professor Muhan, this is something that you wrote in the introduction. It says, I quote, China was at the center of an interconnected and global network of engagement in the past and remains so in the present. You know, it's so interesting that on one side, China needs allies and China needs partners in terms of building this economic power and this political uh, changes or political uh, uh, powerhouse. But meanwhile, China is very careful in terms of picking the allies or picking even the enemies. So, Professor, from your perspective, how would you evaluate the recent progress under the current leader in terms of smoothing the relationship with foes and also, meanwhile, strengthening the relationship with friends or allies? What is your take on that? Thank you so much. Also, excellent question. I mean... If we look at China um, today, I think what we can see is that it has very few friends, very mm. few really good friends. And, and then it has a lot of countries that are interested in trading with China, in mm. doing business with China, because China is very important. But I wouldn't say that they are necessarily friends. So mm. the problem that China faces today is I think that in most respects, it's more or less stands alone. Mm. So let me give you an example. For instance, we all know the Ukraine crisis or the war there and so on. 
So, and there's a lot of non-Western countries who actually have a share China's skepticism of the Western position, whether mm. rightly so or not. I let's let's not discuss this. But there's, you know, from Brazil to uh, to India, they both they all have reservations. Mm. But China has not managed to become the leader or even the spokes person, you know, for this non-Western groups who thinks we don't, you know, we, we are we sort of neutral in the conflict. It hasn't. And I think that, uh, again, shows that China has difficulties forming real alliances. Mm. And I think this is a major challenge uh, for China. But it has, uh, you're absolutely right, managed to smooth uh, conflicts uh, with countries in the neighborhood. It had resolved many border issues, you know, and, and so in many ways it has sort of, um, you know, found solutions to the problems, but it hasn't managed to be, to, to have a real friend in the world. Mm. That's my, that's my opinion, at least. You know, Professor, again, going back to your book, you specifically talk about, again, starting the book, The Rise and the Fall of Qing China. You know, it's so interesting that historically speaking, I have to say, you are the few of the writers that I ever encounter when we study Chinese history that willing to start the chapters or willing to start the books going back to the dynasty periods of China. You know, again, at that moment, I want to say during those dynastic periods, it was tumultuous for China to find the word identity. It was really difficult comparing with how far China has come today. So my next question is, why why did you start the chapter with the Qing dynasty? What was something special about that period? And also, how does that period reflect what is happening today? Or maybe perhaps, even if I can be careful, pave the way for us to understand how China continued to progress over the years. So in, in the, during Qing China, when, when my book begins, we see a China that is sort of already at the apex of its dynastical development. It is also at the center of a global web of trade relations. Mm. It's easily forgotten that during this period of time, China already delivers a product to the world that the world really you know, wants and uh, and consumes and buys from China, and that is porcelain. Mm. Uh, remember that China produces porcelain since the ninth century, but Europe only starts to produce its own porcelain in the 19th or early mm. late 18th or early 19th century. So China has an enormous advantage. It has a product that everybody can use because if you use porcelain, you can actually consume hot food much easier, much more convenient. It's also very hygienic because, you know, it has a clean, it's at a very uh, smooth surface. It can be cleaned easily. So at this time, China has a big trade surplus with mm. Europe, just like today. You know, it sells much more than it can buy from Europe. So, and I think that is was a brilliant point to start a history about China because we can see China as being as, as, a, as a major power that is technologically advanced and that already dominates the world market. So in many ways, how to, your question is, how does it pave you know, our understanding, the way for understanding China today mm. is that when we look at China today, that is not a new development. China mm. has just managed to, to come back in a position that had it already occupied before during the Qing dynasty. Mm. 
You know, uh, Professor Muhan, it's so interesting that to listen to this part of the Chinese history. But meanwhile, again, going back to uh, specific chapters that you wrote and cover, when we talk about China, or, you know, to be specific, we talk about any period of China, there were conflicts, and there were revolutions, and there were even the word shame, you know, something that China, historically speaking, was not proud. But meanwhile, any country went through transitions, always faced failures and setbacks, but for China, again, before 1949, nobody took care, I mean, nobody took this country seriously. And everyone thought it was a, just, again, we'll say new kid on the block or a place in the back burner. But less than 70 or even less than years, the China is no longer just a name that everyone's map. It's actually a nation that willing or can be bold enough to challenge another major power. So I want to, uh, the question to you, Professor, is how should we, historically speaking, evaluate all those failures and setbacks that China went through over the period, especially that during the Mao Revolution, you know, again, under different administrations or leaders, that China was, was actually struggling, not only politically, but also economically. I think what China... Um, is very good at is that it not only has these setbacks because you're right every nation has setbacks mm. every nation has it suffers humiliations every nation goes through periods of, of misery mm. and, uh, and, uh, and and hardship but what China did is it learned from its mistakes and I think that makes it really outstanding mm. um, and that applies not only to the Communist Party who learned from its mistakes under Mao who learned from the you know, economic uh, problems that were produced during this time and then came out with a reform and opening policy that mm. contradicted most of what had happened before, but it also applies to earlier periods. So I think in many ways, that's, that's that where my institutional approach comes in. What we see is also a willingness to, to make these institutions better by looking at the rules and regulations and always asking, you know, are they working? Can they be improved? Do we need to adopt? Has the world changed? So for me, that is a key secret uh, for China's success. Hmm. You know, in back in 1972, the former U.S. President Richard Nixon and did something unprecedented. And he actually landed, I mean, went to China for the first time. And that's why what we use the word open door policy. You know, again, two nations for the first time started the official communication. Now, back in the days, again, Professor, you're familiar with also another term. It's called the ping pong diplomacy. So which means ping pong was I mean, or is still a popular sports worldwide. But back in the days, ping pong was actually the key to open the door to break down the barriers between the two countries. But fast forward today, we are looking at the relationship between U.S. and China. There's no ping pong uh, diplomacy and there's no open door diplomacy. And again, two uh, friendly nations today became these competitors, became these rivalries with each other. What happened did one side messed up the entire system or both sides should take a step back, re-examine this relationship? I think um, 
you know, I'm with you and I think uh, both sides should step back and re-examine and really give it a hard think what's happening. Um, because as it always is in such an escalating tensions, mm. um, there's on, this is never only one side. Mm. You know, it takes two to tangle, mm. so to speak. And in, in that sort of conflict, it also takes two sides to, to, to be distrustful of each other. And I think that is a big problem for the world, for Europe, for Germany. And, and also for the U.S. and for China. So what we would need, and I, I totally agree with you, what we would need is ping-pong diplomacy. What we need is keep the channels open, you know, engage in dialogue. Um, you know, this, is, uh, this has to be on an, equal, you know, on an equal level, but there has to be an understanding that um, if we don't manage this relationship well, it will have effect on all of us, our prosperity, our economic system. We now know from Corona and the, 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 the impact of the Ukraine war, it will lead you know, to setbacks and uh, impoverishment all over the world. So I think it's extremely important to keep the door open and to engage in a dialogue. Mm. Professor, I want to um, shift our gear to something else that you also touch on a book, which is very much significant about not just about the Chinese government, but the Chinese people. Specifically, that you wrote that through the early Qing dynasty until, you know, again, after 1949 until today, Chinese people have been very active in playing this significant role in pushing the social political and cultural agenda. Now, from your perspective, how should we understand the changes of China through the eyes of not just the political parties, not just the political members, but the average citizens? How much do you think that their voices matter from the history until today? I think their, his, their voices matter greatly. And um, I tried in the book uh, indeed to restore agency to, uh, to the population and to the regular people and shift the attention away from the leaders and the big names, mm. and, you know, but rather to the creativity and the hard work of ordinary Chinese. And so for me, the explanation of this miracle, this economic miracle that China went through in the last uh, 30, 40 years is mostly due to the hard work uh, of the Chinese people and to the creativity and the farsightedness of the entrepreneurs and the business people and the thinkers and the intellectuals. So for me, you know, we when you know how do we evaluate this is also to to understand that China is a very diverse place mm. and also a very dynamic place. And we have to look very carefully because today's perspective on China is that we really see the government in everything and see the government controlling everything. And that is wrong, because I think by that, by such a uh, such a perspective, you know, leads us to ignore possibilities to engage with China and to have a good dialogue, civil society to civil society. You know, comparing with the predecessors, we're looking at multiple generations, again, from Chairman Mao, you know, to, uh, uh, to the next uh, successor until today, Xi Jinping. In comparison and contrast, current Chinese leader, I guess, by the general survey, seems more friendly or more down-to-earth, more approachable to the average citizens. Now, the question to you, Professor, is 
how much does it help for the Chinese leader today to become more approachable and much more closer to the Chinese people and in terms of delegating this country. Because, you know, again, back in the days that, when, you know, when we think about Chairman Mao and when we think about all these party leaders, I guess we use the word idolize them. You know, it was there's a huge, uh, not only what we called economic gap, but also this ideological gap. But today, when we look at the media, when we look at the reports one after another, the leaders today in China is no longer up in the air but is willing to bring himself down to the people in order to build and share commonalities. How feasible or how, uh, uh, can I say, uh, uh, practical it is for the Chinese leader to continue this path and what purpose or what greater benefits could we see that? I, it is absolutely necessary. Uh, it is inevitable uh, for any Chinese leader to be in touch with the population and to be in touch with the ordinary uh, Chinese. Because, I mean, that we have discussed this in the earlier question. I mean, the, the Chinese population always had a say. And mm. in the end, even in a system like uh, in China today, it is absolutely necessary to be attuned to the, uh, you know, to the mood, the atmosphere, the, the attitudes, uh, the problems, the worries uh, within the Chinese population. And I think... It is, however, in a country as big as China, always a huge challenge for the leadership, you know, to be in touch mm. uh, with society. Because, uh, see, that's it is it is huge, and the distance, you know, between north and south, east and west, uh, is enormous. And we speak about 1.3 billion people, mm. so it's an enormous challenge. And I think, of course. But the, the 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 current leadership, as well as past leadership, was was absolutely keenly aware of the fact that they need the support uh, of the population. And so what we can see now today is different methods or tools to actually sort of, um, you know, maintain that support. And that is through media, that is through, of course, through, through, through speeches, this is through a number of things. Mm. Professor, I want to get to the last proportion of our conversation. I know you're very busy, so I will keep the questions really short. Let's talk about sovereignty the word again that referring to the uh, the book that you uh wrote you know for for years that china has never been interested in meddling any other international affairs because again the chinese government belief what's happening outside should be solved within their own countries as well now that goes the same thing with the principle in china but right now, there are so many other countries that are trying to meddle with Chinese domestic affairs in terms of territorial dispute, in terms of human, right, human rights watch, and also many other uh, political or economic reasons. So the question to you is, how do you think that China is pos positioning itself in terms of dealing with all those what we called, quote, noises? So on the other hand, China can't avoid or can't escape all those interruptions or noises. But meanwhile, China needs to stay focused in order to produce much greater fruit or produce much uh, a, a grandier uh, results for the uh, for the greater future. So how do you think China should position itself in the midst of the entire interruption or noises? 
Well, I mean, the world has become a very, uh, a very difficult place, right? I mean, uh, and a very a place where we can see that, uh, you know, what what uh, uh, you know, analysts of international relation call a multipolar world. Mm. So it's also a world that has no longer the clear structure of the past, and things are obviously shifting, and structures are dissolving, and 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 so. I think for 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 these um, for China's positioning in, in this in this world of in a world of change, um, it's it's an enormous challenge. And I think on the one hand, it's very good to stick to its own uh, you know uh, country or sphere and not meddle in others. But on the other hand, China is also, of course, uh, always thinking that it needs to secure its shipping lines, mm. it needs to project power abroad. It's perhaps no longer possible, you know, to just uh, be only in your own country. And that applies for other countries as well. You know, let's not forget, we live in a globalized world, and we are highly interdependent of each other. And uh, there are certain areas like climate change that cannot be solved by one country alone. Uh, so it needs countries to work together. So, and I think, however, we can also say that because international institutions like the United Nations have become weakened mm. uh, over time, and also I think because, to be honest, because of Western criticism, mm. especially American criticism, um, we now lack, you know, a structure to actually work together on these things. But I don't think it's possible and I don't think it's enough, you know, to just focus on your own country mm. because the world we live in does, does simply not make that possible. But what about the leaders, for example, the uh, the newly elected leader in South Korea and also uh, the current uh, uh, German chancellor and also uh, the uh, Japanese prime minister? I mean, again, even the latest one, uh, the brand new prime minister in Australia, all these leaders today have come out numerous times or one way or another that saying that these countries needs to be much tougher on China, you know, politically or economically. But again, Professor Muhan, as what you said, if this is the game we play, no one is going to win in the end because we can't afford to have another major war, politically speaking or militarily speaking. This is not something we want to see. But meanwhile, those such rhetoric could be seen as a threat to China. How do you think that China or the Chinese government should react to those noises? Right. So again, I'm, 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 I think the only way, you know, to solve that problem or to solve that difficult situation, which you described, I think, very correctly, is to build trust mm. and to maintain dialogue. So I think the Chinese government has has to build trust with its with its neighbors and also with other countries mm. and there is still a possibility you know especially i think in europe but also in other areas of the world and there is this possibility mm. um to engage in this dialogue and to find common ground because not only is it that a war would be harmful but uh, you know we also face major challenges in the world you know um also think about the digital transformation that uh, when when computers or robots replace uh, human workers, mm. that will affect all of us. Mm. And we need all of us, all of humanity needs a sort of a solution. So that's why I'm so strongly in favor to say there is no solution to global, to global problems without China. 
We need China in that. And on the other hand, China also needs the world. Mm. And I think both sides need to understand that and need to build bridges. Mm. Professor Muhan, I got two more questions before wrapping up this conversation. Now, let's talk about the younger generations in China. Not only the younger generations in China, but also today, cities nationwide are becoming the centers which attract international talents. You know, statistically speaking, that every year pre-pandemic or even today, I guess despite the whole restriction and lockdown, more and more international students are flooding into China. Either they're advancing their education degree or they're becoming entrepreneurs or they're seeking ways to, uh, I guess, find ideal, find identity in this country. Now, from your per perspective, Professor Quickly, how essential it is for China continue to have this open door policy or to have this open door welcoming arms in order to embrace the changes by welcoming those international talents? It's absolutely crucial because I think, among among other things, what we can see is that uh, you know certain talents. Um, are already, um, you know, in demand or in need in many areas of the mm. world, and there's a sort of a global competition, you know, for the brightest, uh, for the brightest minds, and the brightest minds are not that many, you know. I mean, so I think it's extremely important to keep the door open. But on the other hand, you know, I also think it's extremely important for the world mm. to be welcoming Chinese students, and I'm very worried about this growing hostility toward uh, the Chinese uh, student populations mm. in, uh, for instance, in the U.S., um, because, you know, they are suspected to be spying for the government right. uh, and so on and so forth. Very, very uh, dangerous. So I think both sides need to keep the door open because this exchange of young people and this, uh, uh, you know, that sort of this uh, fluctuation of young people across the globe, that is our chance for the future. We mm. need a globally minded young people. Mm. Professor Muhan, I want to wrap up our conversation again, going back to this book. Again, ladies and gentlemen, I'm hoping the holding this book right now. It's written by a Professor Muhan. It's called Making China Modern. Now, let's end this conversation with a simple question. You've written this book. Again, you told us stories, not just about the political parties, but also the people in China. When For every single reader, when we finish reading your book, what would want, what would you want readers to understand when we finish reading this amazing book? Is there anything that particular have on your mind that we should or we ought to understand, even as a Chinese national or as an outsider today? I think my basic point, you know, that I would like to people to take away is that China can offer so much to the world, mm. you know, in terms of its history. It's also its wisdom that it has, you know, it's its experiences that it has made, and that's the people of China have made, that uh, that it, its approach to certain things, its perspective. So there is a wealth and a richness, you know, that can actually help us all. So my, my point would be that we evaluate, that we that we welcome, you know, this, uh, this richness that China gives the world, mm. and we see it as something fruitful and positive. Well, Professor Yuhan, one thing I can tell you is for anyone that who are still uh, dying would like to know this country and would like to know the history or how historical affairs events, 
have shaped this country, one thing I want to say is this is a, a good book or this is a must read. Again, Dr. Klaus Muhan and has been a president of Zeppelin University and the chair of Modern China Studies since June 1st, 2020. And in 2019, his work Making China Modern from the Great Qing to Xi Jinping was published by Harvard U University and also is available in the German language. So again, Professor Muhan, thank you so much for taking your time to join the show. It's been a pleasure speaking to you and we love to have you back again as we continue to discover more about the country and also this international relationship between China and the rest of the world. Thank you so much for doing this.